Glad you're here. Uh, if you're new around here, my name's Tom. Uh, I'm our, our teaching pastor. I don't teach all the time. We have great people that, that teach from time to time uh, with us, but, um, but I'm glad that you're with us. And uh, today I want to just, there's, I've got a prop, right? And I'm going to ask, like, when's the last time that you set the table? Okay, if your house is like ours, setting the table usually involves, like, everybody, you know, run by, grab a plate. Like, do we need anything more than a fork? Do we even need a fork? You know, like, it's pizza night again or whatever. Um, but I, I do want to, I just want to take this moment to just, I want to kind of set the table, okay? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, does the fork go on the left or the right? Like, I don't, Debbie, help me. I don't know. Left, okay, fork on the left, okay? But I know that there's something in the center, like you got to have, that's, if it's an important meal, you put something in the center. I don't know why, but you do, right? Okay, and um, you got plates, of course, right? And, um, well, you said left, right? Left, okay. There's napkins. I was going to make the napkins stand up, but I felt like that would be showing off. I can't. I can't. I don't know. Like, no, no. All right. So we'll, we'll, we'll put the napkin out. The fork goes with the napkin. Okay. Debbie's helping me. Thank you. So. I don't know. I don't know. Jello? Right. There's, there's little bowls. There's little bowls. I got to make this one right. Okay. <clears throat> fork on the left. Fork on the left. Fork on the left. Okay. All right, so the table's set, right? And we set tables, okay? The setting of the table is apparently an important uh, cultural moment. It's, a, it's, a, it's something you do to be hospitable, right? Um, but, but the setting of the table, it, 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 it's sort of necessary for the, for the meal or the feast, but it's not the meal or the feast itself. It anticipates it, right? We do it in anticipation of what's to come so that when the time comes... We can sit down at the table, and we can enjoy the meal. Are you with me on this? Here's what we're doing over these the, the last week, this week, and even next week, and, and a, a little further on in this series. We're looking at the book of Exodus. And these early chapters were setting the table, okay? We're anticipating the feast. It's coming. It's coming. But in order to get there, there's certain things that need to be in place, and so we're going we're gonna to look in, in Exodus uh, chapter 2 today. If you've got a Bible, we'll get there in just a minute. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 2. And, um, and uh, obviously Exodus chapter 2, <laughs> someone rightly put Exodus chapter 2 right after chapter 1. Okay? And, and so last week in chapter 1, we, when we, we took a look at a few things. We took a look at a few things. And in order to understand 2, we need to understand 1. And so um, in Exodus chapter 1... We hit a couple of things, and the first one, look at this, it's spelled right, okay? Um, <laughs> sorry, if you, if you were, that's a call back to last week. Um, but, but we talked about how the book of Exodus, particularly these early chapters, about, well, I say early chapters, about the first 20 chapters of Exodus, sets up what's called a meta-narrative or a big story, okay? And it's not just a big story in the, in, in the sense of like it's, you know, a blockbuster story, but it's a big story in the sense of it's a story through which we can then understand other stories, particularly for us individually, ultimately, our own story. And so we'll see elements in, in the meta-narrative of the book of Exodus that help us interpret and understand where we are, what's going on around us, and, and our eventual outcome. And that's going to happen here in these early chapters of the book of Exodus. Another thing that we'll see in it is that um, last week we looked at chapter 1, and, and the story started with bondage. That's why the chains, Okay. That's why the chains are everywhere. That's the, the story of the book of Exodus begins with bondage. The people are enslaved. 
What started as a family had turned into a nation over, over hundreds of years. But that nation was, was caught in sort of a power struggle. And they were on the, the losing end of that power struggle. And the, the Egyptians, where they, where they had gone to escape famine in the land of Egypt, the Egyptians had, had enslaved them. And so they're in bondage. And that bondage, um, that bondage in the meta-narrative, in the big picture, is a starting point for us as well. Because the story of the scriptures, the story that Christ will tell, the story that, through which we interpret our lives, is also a story of bondage. It begins there. We, we're, 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 we're trapped. We're trapped by all kinds of things in life that some of them we chose, some of them we didn't. Remember, this is a complicated mess. Like, things happened to me where I was a victim, but because of that, I responded in ways that were illegitimate. And now I'm just sort of in my life in various places. I'm just sort of stuck. And, and the Bible has a word for that being stuckness in sin, right? It's sin. And so this big story begins with, it, does, it begins in a place that isn't, that isn't a great spot. It's not good news at the outset. We're stuck in sin and bondage. And, and Exodus just sort of, it, it just sort of, we just jump right into that water. They were in bondage. And it raises questions, raises all kinds of questions. And last, last week we asked some questions about it, and today we're going to ask, like, okay, in the middle of all this, is God still involved? I'm, I'm trapped, I'm in bondage, and it just seems like I'm spinning my wheels. And where are you, God, in all of this? Like, I, I can't get a break. I can't, I can't seem to get ahead. And I'm sort of stuck in this. And then, and then at the end of chapter one, we meet these midwives. They were two women responsible for, for helping the, the Hebrew women give birth. And they're told by the, the king, the pharaoh, to kill every baby boy who's born, they're to kill him. And these midwives lie. They, they won't do it, Okay. So they, 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 they're preserving the lives of the Hebrew boys that are born. And it says something fascinating at the end of chapter 1. God honored their lie. Like, he honored the choice they made. They, they told the Pharaoh that we won't do this. Well, they didn't say that. Actually, what they said was, uh, sorry, I, I said they, they wouldn't do it. They said that. But then they said, uh, the Hebrew women give birth really quickly. <laughs> we can't get there in time. And, and the Pharaoh was like, okay, I'm going to have to up the ante. Just go, like, go kill all the boys. That's sort of where chapter 1 ends. Okay? That's where chapter 1 ends. So today, if you've got your Bible, let's look, at, let's look at chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2. Are you there? If not, it'll be up in front of you, okay? And we're going to hit a few things here in Exodus chapter 2. Let's read through the first section. This is probably a familiar story for many, but let's take a look at it again. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Now, the Levite part is important. In the last chapters of Genesis, all these sons, uh, Levi was one of the sons of, of uh, Jacob and um, uh, and so you have this, um, you, have, you have these 12 sons, and, the, and there was tension in the family, but Levi stood up at a particular time, and he, he took, like, responsibility, and he gets a blessing, and the blessing is that, like, there's going to be good things that happen in your family because of this, okay? So here's, so the story starts, if you're reading the story, the, sor- the story, st- it's easy for you to say, the story starts, Okay? The story starts in Exodus chapter 2 with a Levite woman. And to any, any reader of this in its context would understand that, that the promise that was made to the family of Levi 
is it's going to start to unfold here. We're going to start to see God keeping a promise. So it says that this, this man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. That's tar and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. This is assumed to be the River Nile, the delta area of the River Nile. So she takes the child that's born healthy. She puts it in this, this little basket that she's made and sets him to float in the river. Okay? It's a tough decision, right? Like, could you imagine, like, as, as parents, those are parents, and we make tough decisions all the time, okay? But can you imagine this sort of decision? That I'm, I'm living at a point in time where just the fact that I've given birth to this child puts the child in danger because of our ethnicity, because of our, our heritage, our family. And I've got a decision to make. And the decision, the decision that seems best to me at the time and in the circumstances is to take my three-month-old child and put him in a basket and set him in the water to float. Okay? Keep reading. Gets better. Verse 4, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh, this is the Egyptian king, came, the, his daughter, came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his, his sister, the child's sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Still with us? Verse 9, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. It actually, the, the word actually means to draw forth, okay, Moses. So here's this fascinating story, right? This fascinating story. So you have, you have Moses' mother gives birth. She puts him in the river. The sister's sort of standing guard. You keep watch. And in the midst of this, one of the most powerful women in the land comes to the river to bathe, and in doing so, she finds this child. Again, we probably, you know, if we've seen the movie or movies, we probably know this, right? But, but they, they pull the child out, and, and it, fascinating, right? But she's, she's this woman this, this, the daughter of Pharaoh is living at a point in time where the decree of her father is that all of these Hebrew children should die, and yet she makes a compassionate choice, right? She, she sees him, she has compassion for him, and so she acts in defiance of her father, right? There's no reference here that she went and asked permission, okay? Maybe she was a little spoiled, daughter of the king, I don't know. Maybe he would have found out and said, like, oh, whatever. We don't know. It's, that's filling in the gaps. But, but whatever happens... Moses' sister steps in, offers this, this way for the child to be cared for, and, and Moses goes back to his family's home where he's nursed by his mother until he's ready to be essentially adopted into the royal family in Egypt. Okay? Amazing story. Amazing story. It's what? Ten verses. Ten verses of this book of Exodus. It's, it's a piece of setting the table. But I want to pause for a second and say this. This is, this is really 
this is, this is, this is really just a sidebar, but I think this is critical. And I, I highlighted a few words in there. Did you catch who was responsible for all of these things? If we go to the end of chapter one, it was Hebrew midwives, it was women. Okay? It was women. Essentially powerless women. Okay? In, in that ancient Near Eastern structure, the women would have had no power of their own. But they, they, they made a choice by faith in God to do something. Did you see what happens? Who's, who, who, who does it focus on in these early chapters as well? Moses' mother. She makes a choice. His sister. Pharaoh's daughter. Okay? I don't want to. I don't want to go too far off on a tangent on this, but I want you to. I want you to hear something. To twenty. And sometimes in the twenty-first century, we have certain sensibilities about gender, and sometimes those sensibilities would tell us that that this text, this book, is is demeaning to women, or it's it's it puts women down. And I have to tell you something right here up front. Okay, the meta narrative that the scriptures build on the big story is one woman after the next being honored by God for her choices. These are the heroes in the story at the human level. They took upon themselves the responsibility and the obligation and they acted. This is fascinating. This, this story should stand out to us in ways that, that other stories from the ancient Near East don't because in the ancient Near East, other stories do one of two things. They demean women as less than human or they elevate them and worship them as goddesses. What this story does is it puts women rightly in their place, which is keep individuals loved by God and placed in important spots where they follow him and they're honored for it, okay? This is a, it's just a, it's a powerful moment. And so here's this, the beginning of Moses' story, but we're gonna keep reading because where we wanna camp today is the next little section. So take a look at verse 11. Take a, verse, take a look at verse 11. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, <laughs> fast forward, Okay? When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. So he goes out amongst the Hebrews. And he looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Okay? He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So fast forward, we, we're at best speculation, Moses is roughly about 40 years old. Okay? He's lived apparently in the royal house, but he's still in touch with his identity. He still knows who he is. And he goes out and he sees the Hebrew people working like slaves and he sees, he sees one of the Egyptians beating them. And, but did you catch this moment, the very beginning of verse 11 there, or sorry, verse 12? What does it say? It says, he looked this way and that and then he kills the Egyptian and he hides him. In the midst of the story, in the midst of, of, this, of this unfolding drama, here's Moses who, who encounters a situation. He comes up upon a situation. It's a, it's a situation that's unjust, clearly. But upon contemplation, he makes a choice. And the choice is to take a life. To take a life. Now notice what had happened prior to this in the story. What did the midwives do? What was their choice? They lied, yes, but they lied and preserved life. What did Moses' mother do? She made a difficult choice. The choice was in front of her. It was a tough choice. But upon contemplation, we could say, she preserved his life. The sister, in a moment, 
She works to preserve his life. Pharaoh's daughter even. Pharaoh's daughter sees the Hebrew child and she preserves his life. Are you detecting a trend? And enter Moses. And upon contemplation, looking this way and that, Moses breaks the pattern. He does something different. Okay? Verse 13. It says, when he went out the next day, (laughs) the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Have you ever been caught? Right? There's all kinds of stuff in this, right? But, but so Moses, the next day he goes out. He goes out to Hebrews fighting. And they say these, this, when he breaks up the fight, one of them says these words to him, who made you judge? Who made you judge? Now, here's the, here's the beauty of this. We know the end of Moses' story. And you know what's fascinating? He becomes their judge. He becomes the judge of the Hebrew people. It becomes this heavy burden he has to carry. Some fast forward another 40 years from now. But it's almost as if there's foreshadowing in the story, right? And yet Moses, upon hearing those words, he doesn't respond and go like, well, God made me judge, which he will at some point. His first response is, to to, to internalize and to take it and to carry the guilt. Oh, you're right. Look at what I've done. I can't do this. I'm not worthy. And so, verse 15, when Pharaoh or the king heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And it says, and he sat down by a well. There's more to that story. So he's caught. You have that moment like you're, on 270, not paying real close attention, you get caught, and then my, my favorite moment is the moment where you realize, like, oh, no, no, they caught the other guy. <laughs> I got away with it, right? Um, maybe you've had the moment where you get the letter from the Internal Revenue Service, <laughs> and maybe it was an accident, but you go, like, oh, crap, did I do this right? Oh, that never happened to me. Okay. Um, but, but those moments, we, have, we have those moments where we sort of get caught. We have those moments where like, maybe you think, like, oh, no, my secret's out. And the response in the midst of it. So here's Moses, and he runs. He's caught. He knows it. And he runs. Okay? He runs. And running is part of Moses' story. Okay? It's a necessary part of his story. We're going to find out that these, time, these times on the run are important, but you'll have to come back for that. Okay? But he winds up out in Midian, which is a little funny to me. It's not that far from Egypt. I feel like the Pharaoh, if his will was strong enough, he could have gone out there and got, and got Moses. Okay? But he winds up in the land of Midian. And as he goes, I'm going I'm to summarize the next section. As he goes out to Midian, he, he's sitting at this well, and at this well there's some women, and they're, they're feeding they're, they're, they're getting water, and, and uh, some, some foreigners come along and, and harass them, and Moses steps in, just like he did with the Egyptian. He steps in, and he runs off the foreigners, okay? And one of those women that was there be, becomes his wife, and Moses is taken into her family. He gets another sort of adoptive family, and he goes about a pretty quiet life. He goes from, you know, the penthouse 
the family of royalty, and he winds up in a tent in the wilderness with sheep. It's, it's where he goes from there. Okay? But there's something at the end of this chapter that I, I think we need to see. Because okay? it feels like it's, it's, sort of a, it's sort of wedged in the, in, at the end of the story, but I believe it's critical to understanding what's going on. Take a look at verse 23. Verse 23, during those many days, these are the many days that that Moses is living out in Midian. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And it says, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You see, we're looking at Moses at the end of his first act. Okay? He's 40 years old. We sort of know he dies at about 120. Okay? We're seeing him at the end of his first act. It's, a, it's, a, it's short. It's, by the end of chapter 2 of the book of Exodus, Moses is at the, at the end of his first act. And when we start chapter 3, he's going to be at the beginning of his third act, okay? The, the narrative of the scripture seems to brush over this period of time. It's setting the table for something that's coming. And the setting is important. It matters so that the feast can come. But we find Moses here at this transition point. 95% of the story is gonna take, Moses' story is gonna take place after this. We know so much more about the details of what went on after this. But notice the trends that are established in the backstory of Moses. Notice these trends. The, these women with the, we mentioned this, but these women with the moral conflict, they preserve life. But Moses breaks that pattern. He, he senses the conflict. He comes up to the conflict, and, and, and he chooses differently. He doesn't preserve life. He takes life. We could say that, that Moses acted in the place of God. The women chose to trust that God would deliver. Moses took deliverance into his own hands. He wanted to solve it himself. He wanted to break the chains on his own. Now, I would say this to you. Moses felt the right thing. There was nothing wrong with his feeling. The outrage that he felt at the injustice that was going on was completely appropriate. But it's clear also in the story that Moses didn't do the right thing. Do we know the difference? It's possible to feel the right things, all the right things, and yet do the wrong things. It's possible that what we feel and what we sense as righteous anger, the feeling is right. So much about it is right. We're torn by the injustice of our world. We're angered by the bondage that we experience, that we feel around us. And at the same time, it's completely possible. In fact, it's very regular for us to take matters into our own hands, to to try to be the agent of our own deliverance, to say that if no one's going to take care of this unless I take care of it. And that's where these verses at the end of this chapter speak directly into what's going on. Because there's sort of this question that we started with, remember? I feel like at times I'm dying in bondage. I feel like it. I feel like I'm struggling with the same shortcomings that I was struggling with a decade ago. 
I feel like when I, when I survey the landscape, when I look left and I look right, I don't see anyone there who's here to help me. I feel like that. I feel like, I feel like the, the world is, is just, it's so full of darkness. It's so full of challenge. And it's too big. And I want to take matters into my own hands. I want to manipulate and control. I want, to, I want a lever to pull that's, that's, that's going to make it right. And so maybe I, I try to pull the financial lever, or I try to pull the, the power level, the political power level or lever, or, or I, I, try to, I try to manipulate those around me. I, or maybe, I, maybe I go deeper into some of my bondage with, with things that I do in my life to try to medicate my problems. Maybe I... Not actually physically, but maybe I take life. Maybe I try to take the life from other people as a way of, of sort of managing the bondage that I am sensing and feeling. You see, the sense that, that you're, we're in bondage is right. The sense that there's injustice in the world is right. The, all, the midwives felt it. Moses' mother felt it. For crying out loud, the daughter of Pharaoh felt it. But Moses swung a weapon to hurt. And that sent him on a path. Now, again, that path that Moses was on was important. The table's being set. The table's being set. And there's a feast coming in the book of Exodus where the, the people will eat freely. <laughs> God's hand. But the story that Moses goes through is one of difficulty because I think he's looking at it and saying, God, are you going to do anything about this? This isn't right. It's not right that the weak suffer. And it's as if God says, you're, you're right on, Moses. It's not right that those who are different get picked on bullied, pushed around. It's not right. It's not right that we exploit one another, that we, we use people for our own ends. It's not right. And we come into touch with it, we come in contact with it, and we look to the left and we look to the right and we have a moment of choice. And in the midst of that choice, we need to look at what God says. Because in those last couple of verses of chapter 2, notice the things he says. He says, God hears. God heard the groaning of his people. Do we believe that? Do we believe that when we cry out, God, this, this isn't right. This doesn't make sense. The scales are not balanced. Do we believe that God hears? Because if we, if we believe that it's falling on deaf ears, we're much more likely to, to swing the hammer to take someone else's life. Much more likely. Do we stop crying out? Do we silence our voice? Does prayer become a thing of our past? A quaint practice that we used to engage in until we realized it didn't change anything? Do we believe that God hears? Because it tells us he does. He does. Even though in this story of Moses, it's been hundreds of years, 
for, for the nation, for the, for the people of Israel. But it, it's been 40 years in Moses' life where it's gone on and he's not seen anything done about it. And he confuses the time that God is using with indifference on God's part. Don't stop talking to God. Don't stop crying out because he hears. It also says that God remembers. He hears, but he's not, he's not distant somewhere in a way that like it's, it's a faint voice. He remembers. He remembers the promises that he's made. He remembers that he has, he has promised these people a land of their own. He's promised to, to care for them, to meet their needs. Do we believe that? Do we believe that in the midst of our own struggle, in the midst of our own bondage, when the chains feel so oppressive and so heavy, do we believe that God hasn't forgotten about us, that he remembers us? Do we live in such a way that, as if his promises are true? Or do we take matters into our own hands? Do we survey the landscape and just try a new strategy? That one didn't work for me. I'm going to try something else but it's still in my hands. It says he sees. He sees what's going on. Isn't it so easy to believe that God doesn't see what's happening to me? Have you had that moment where someone did you wrong? This is my, class, this is my typical response. Did anybody see this? Right? It's like I play in the NBA. Okay. Did anybody see this? And here's the answer. God says, I see. I'm not, I'm not far away. I'm here with you. I see. I see everything that's happened to you. The ledger that you're keeping is irrelevant because I have one that's far more accurate. I know everything that's been done. I know every way that the scales have been tipped against you. And I know every way that you have tipped the scale against others. I see it all. I know, he says. God knows. He knows. It's fascinating here. This word know, when it uses the, when it says the, the, um, the very last word of chapter two, and God knew, it's actually the word yada, okay? Yada, okay? It's a word for knowledge. It's like a blanket word. Um, that refers to all kinds of knowledge, except it's not just about, like, information. It's actually about intimate, personal connection. Sometimes yada is used as a, as a fill-in for, like, marital intimacy when it says in the, in the Old Testament that he knew his wife. The word that's used here to describe the intimacy that God has in the midst of our bondage, in the midst of our suffering, is the most intimate word for knowledge that, that was available to the ancient writers. Here's what it's, it's saying to us. It's saying that, that he knows in a way that he feels it with you. That, that righteous outrage that, that we feel at the injustice, God feels it with us. It's so easy, again, to look around and to say, no one cares about what's happening to me. No one sees, no one remembers, and no one hears. And God says, I'm just setting the table in your life. I'm just setting the table. A feast will come. It'll come. 
It may not come this side of the grave. But do you believe? Do you believe that I hear you? Do you believe that I remember, that I see, that I know you? You see, God sees the whole thing, the big picture. So when he he gives us his promises and he speaks to us in this way, we can trust he knows the outcome because he transcends. He's bigger than all of our, our momentary concerns. But we also have to understand that just because he's, he does transcend and he is so big, he, at the very same time, the fascinating thing about God is that he's also right here in the midst of it with us. He is two things at once in a way we can never be. He can see the whole thing at once and be present in the middle of it. He sees it, but he knows it. He feels it with us. And he's already made a way for deliverance. This is, what's, this is the story that's taking place. Moses is going to be the one that God uses. Moses is not the deliverer. God is the deliverer. But he's setting the table with Moses in Moses' life to be put in, in a, so that Moses could be positioned in such a way that the glory of God would be known in his deliverance. This is what's going on. See, what the women in the story did was they lived in such a way as if God had already delivered. The choices that they made were choices that assumed that God had already delivered. It was all his. The outcome was already settled. God's promises were good. He was going to keep them. He'd already delivered. And they lived that way. But see, what Moses did was he lived in such a way and that early, that first act of his life, right here at that point in time where we see him in chapter 2, Moses lived as if matters needed to be taken in by his own hands. I have to take control of this. And he set up that, again, I want to be careful because God is the only hero of the story. Moses is the instrument that God used. But if we sort of want to make a hero out of Moses, he's like the worst hero we've ever been introduced to. We find out he's a murderer, in the first chapter of his story, right? But God was, God was setting the table for him. It was coming. God wants us to be like the women, okay? He, he hears us. He remembers, okay? And he sees and he knows. And he's asking us today, can we live in such a way that in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our bondage, that we can live like, it's all, we've, like we've already been delivered. That we can trust him in ways that say, God, I, I, can, I can move to preserve life because you are ultimately on my side. You are ultimately the one who will deliver. Not me, but you. Can you pray with me? God, <clears throat> we thank you for... Um, we thank you for the work that you have done and that you, you show us in your scripture, but we, we also thank you for the times that, like the words we, we sang earlier, like I, you've, you haven't let us down. We seem to be sort of precariously on the edge so often, but God, you've, you've preserved us. You've, you've kept us. You haven't failed us. God, forgive us where we... We take control. Forgive us where we grab our own weapon to try and fight your battles for you. 
God, allow us opportunity to, to trust you more. I, I know you're at work. I believe it. God, help us as we, uh, as we live as if it's already true, that we are already delivered. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.